Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Frank Buckley. He's a law professor at George Mason University. Uh, he's been with us before. He's published the first thing before. He should be well known to our audience. Last year, you came in, Frank, to discuss uh, a book, The Republican Workers' Party. And I don't know if we should come back to that. Maybe, 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 maybe we'll come back to that. But really, we're focusing on the new book. Uh, it is entitled, on a whole different subject, it is entitled Curiosity and its 12 Rules for Life. Welcome, Frank. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be back. Okay, rules. This is, this is a guidebook. This is an old-fashioned guidebook for men and women, and, and you're telling us how we need to live our lives. Is that right? Yeah, it's partly inspired by Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life, but the difference that Jordan, I guess like me, is a Canadian, but I moved to the States and while his rules are written for a rather dour people, <laughs> frostbitten in Canada, my book was written for the rather more rebellion people I met when I moved to the United States. So the idea is, you know, get out there, enjoy life, profit from it. It's a world of wonders. And I thought it'd be particularly useful, relevant in the horrible times through which we're living. I mean, we're going through the pandemic, which keeps us indoors and shudders curiosity. And then we have the madness of, of cancel culture and the grievance monsters who demand that we think about their problems and nothing else. And that's absolutely horrible. And, and uh, you know, my, my bet is we're going to break out of that and we'll learn to experience life and enjoy it in the fullest and and I, I liked writing it because it also gave me the opportunity to tell stories. I like to tell stories. So I wrote about the woman who fell in love with Blaise Pascal. Sadly, uh, I wrote about the ghastliest act in English literature with Dante Gabriel Rossetti. I, I wrote about the curiosity of St. Isaac Jug. And then there was the greatest of all, which was the fall. We used to live in a garden. It gave us everything we wanted. And then while we were there, we'd never die. And then because of Eve's curiosity, we were driven from it. So we begin the story by learning that there's something problematical, deeply problematical about, about curiosity, right? But then, you know, we're driven from the world and it's a garden too. And unlike Eden, uh, which lack the history, things happen here. It's, it's a world of action and surprise and passion and ability in a world we can shape by the force of our will. And it's a world that asks us to look, to search, to learn. And curiosity, which was a fatal sin in Eden, is a, a necessary virtue in the new world. Hmm. And you can even think about Eve's curiosity. I mean, she, she, by the way, she's obviously the smarter one of the pair, right? God created her as a cre curious creature, 
I mean, if she had lacked the instinct of curiosity, she wouldn't have been tempted. So it, it was a happy fault that she was curious. It, 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 our ancestors were curious people. Eve was. And, 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 and so are we. You know, Frank, yeah, go ahead. What, what you said a, a moment ago, that, that there are wonders in the world. There are things to discover. But you are implying, and you actually say explicitly early on, that we have less curiosity out there. And the world is no less curious or worthy of curiosity than before. Uh, what are the more distant forces. I mean, we've got the cancel culture, which kind of suppresses curiosity, the freedom to be curious, because if you're gonna be curious about something, you might delve into areas that are might be a little treacherous in, in some way. You might flirt with ideas that run against the, the dogmas of our day. But if, if you go back a little, do you wanna go back a little more in terms of identifying any of the forces or pressures or phenomena that have suppressed or lessened curiosity today? First of all, there, there's leaving apart the politics of a day, which tends to make us very incurious. There's uh, a nat we all have a dark side, and the dark side asks us to turn our face to the wall and to look into blackness and to avoid noise and not to be touched. I don't know about you, but when the, we're asked to give you know, the, the kiss of peace and everybody tries to shake hands, I try desperately to avoid shaking hands with anybody because you, you can manage it if you try. Right. So we have, we have all that, but we're in a profoundly incurious time now because politics has swallowed up so much of our ordinary life. I think that's horrible. I think that's that's really purely evil, and and it's it's something that's conveyed by people with deep hatred in their soul. I mean, it's not a, a matter of uh, the grievance monsters I'm describing are not people who are really trying to make life better for anybody, but they're trying to make life worse for some people. And and and, and I, you know, my bet is we're going to break away from that. And and as we do, we'll discover that world of wonder. But but you know, we'll also ask profound questions about the meaning of life and death. I mean, where did we come from, and what will happen at death? And Pascal said that people who don't pose those questions are monsters of of incuriosity. And I think our generation, are the boomers, will in particular start to ask those questions as we see old friends spouses, lovers die. I mean, it's, it's going to shake us up, right? Now, Camus told a story about this. He said, a little Frenchman is sent to Buchenwald. He approaches the Nazi clerk with a complaint. He says, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm innocent. The clerk laughs, right? <laughs> the point is, none of us are innocent. We're all going to die. And as that realization hits, it may be we'll see a move towards religion of the kind that happened that the Victorian area, when the, the Regency rakes, that's us, the boomers, give way to a more religious younger generation. So there's that curiosity as well. So, so curiosity, therefore, is also a very profoundly religious instinct. You know, it does put you into a condition of a little more receptivity, right? I mean, curiosity sounds like you're you're penetrating, you're inquisitive, but, you know, curiosity, you, you can't be too decisive 
right? You've got to suspend a little judgment so that, I, I mean, if you're quick to judge, you're not curious anymore, right? Right. I think the great enemy here is is presumption, right? Uh, if, if you think that you're justified, if, if you really believe that you've earned your way to heaven by virtue of your good works, and that's all it takes, then you don't have to be curious about religion, right? And the crushing rejoinder, that's called Pelagianism, which is basically the official religion of America today. I mean, you know, we, we bought our way in there. The, the crushing response by St. Augustine is, well, if that's the case, you don't need the cross, right? You don't need religion. You don't need Christianity. So those religions which t- teach us that, you know, we can know that we are saved are people who say, you don't have to be curious about it. It's, it's a done deal. But in fact, if you follow St. Augustine, it's, it's very much more complicated because God gets a vote too. And, 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 and that, that opens up all kinds of, of interesting possibilities. Let's get to the rules themselves. Now, you begin with an irony, Frank. Rule number one is? No rules. <laughs> okay, now what do you mean by that? The rule-driven life is necessarily incomplete. Oscar Wilde tells a story about how, when he emerged from prison, on the day that, that he was released, he saw a guard give a cookie to a little boy. The boy was 14. The boy was going to prison. The boy was absolutely terrified. And the guard was fired because the guards aren't supposed to do things like that. And, and so Wilde said, really, nothing is more cruel than the pure rule-driven life which, by the way, was also the message of the the rich young man who approaches Christ and asks, gee, is there anything else I have to do? I mean, I've followed all the commandments. And, and, you know, Christ doesn't answer him initially, but finally says, well, look, if you really want to be perfect, then, you know, follow me, give everything you have to the poor and come follow me. And the rich young man goes away sad, and we're supposed to take away from that the message that, you know, the, the rich have problems getting to heaven. But the real message is rules aren't enough. The real message is you're called on not simply to follow rules, but to be perfect. And that can't be done by following rules. So, you know, so that's that's the lead off. But but then when you ask, right, what should I be doing to become curious? There, there are all sorts of interesting things. For example, if you're curious about other people, you want to entertain them. Right. I mean, you can't be a good comedian unless you have a sense of what the audience wants. And I tell a story about that concerning a friend of mine who found that he had cancer and didn't have long to live. And I mean, he took the chemo drugs you're supposed to take. He bloated up. He became unrecognizable, put on a lot of weight. Uh, Hair fell out. And then he looked at himself in the mirror and he realized, you know what, I, I look like a clown. And, and so what he did was he bought a clown outfit and learned some magic trips and tricks and, and entertain children in a cancer ward Good for him. in the last year of his life. Yeah. And, and so he learned how to entertain other people. He did that because he was curious about other people. So. A big part of curiosity is taking an interest in other people. I mean, indeed, I, I argue that you can't even know whether you're in love unless you are obsessively curious about the other person. That's the that's the badge that tells you. But, you know, there, there, there's so many when you think about it, there's there, there's so many great stories out there about 
what you want to do if you want to be curious. I mean, you're supposed to take risks. Well, that's that, that gets to number two, right? Rule number two is take risks. Right. The story here, one of the stories here is Jack and the Beanstalk. And, you know, if you're an adult, you probably remember that as a story about an idiot child who trades a cow for a beanstalk on the promise the beanstalk will grow high, 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 and you'll climb up and you'll get a pot of gold or whatever. You know, but, but in reality, it's a story about taking risks. It's the boy is encouraged to buy the beanstalk because something great's going to happen out of that. Right. And, and young people in particular should be encouraged to take risks. Right. And, and one of the horrible things about our society right now is we oppose risk taking and we in particular put impediments in the path of young people, you know, in terms of educational loans and the like. The obsession with self-protection among the high achieving college students that I've seen is is extraordinary. They really, really do grow up with a, a self-protectiveness that I think it, it goes way too far. They're trained by their parents to do that. You know, they're, they're trained to basically have a good CV at age seven. Okay. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll go to all the right kinds of schools and take after school lessons and they'll do crew or whatever it is. And you know, everybody, pretty much everybody we know does this, right? But it, it tends to produce an uh, incurious student body in college. And, and and they're the kind of people Max Faber described as specialists without spirits, sensualists without heart. Say what you want about we boomers, we weren't like that. Rule number three is sort of like rule number two, court uncertainties. But let's jump to rule number four. Be original. Be original. You want to be a little bit of a rebel. I mean, look, obviously there are limits to that, but you want to break from the you know, the safe path in life. The adventure lies on the off ramp, and and so my heroes in the book. I, I mean, I, I write a lot about. I focus on two people in particular, Blaise Pascal and Albert Camus, and and these were risk takers. I mean, Camus was a risk taker with the provincial letters, which opposed the high and mighty of the time to defend his his chance and his friends. Uh, and, and Camus was always a rebel. I mean, he was he was uh, not going to be a collaborator, right? Uh, and then after the war, he turns out to be anti-communist, which surprises everybody else at the time. He's he's actually a fairly conservative fellow who, by the way, you know, very much admires America. And and to understand that is to understand the existentialist movement in in France at the time. I mean, it, you know, we have this picture of what life was like in Paris in the 40s, which is almost completely wrong, as we're beginning to discover, because collaboration was so easy during the occupation. And indeed, this, you know, the, the center of civilization in 1942, the, the year that Camus, the stranger, came out, the center of civilization was Paris. Everybody was there. The Nobel laureates, you know, the, the, the leading musicians, uh, you know, the, 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 the great psychiatrists, the great dancer, haute couture, it was, it was there so, so much for civilization, I suppose. You know, there, there, are, there are limits to, to that. And, and, and Camus broke with that, right? He, he broke with what was with conformism. 
in terms of a happy collaboration, and he broke with the communists at the end of the war. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Sartre hated, he despised America, didn't he? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, absolutely right. I mean, a nasty piece of work, to quote a phrase. Whereas Camus emerges, uh, you know, as as very much a hero. And indeed, there's a book out now suggesting that that Camus was actually killed at the order of the Kremlin. Really? Yeah. Huh. On this, Frank, uh, don't kids, don't young people hear all the time in pop culture, be a rebel, do your own thing. Is that, is that all just a fake? Yeah. yeah. What, what, I, I think one hears less of that right now, but being a rebel right now means conforming with about 98% of the people in terms of Black Lives Matter and the like. That's supposed to be, a, you know, rebellion today means thinking exactly the same thing as all the thought leaders in the newspaper world and social media and the academy and in business think. That's rebellion, right? Well, give me a break. The real rebellion is is orthodoxy. That's right. I mean, I mean, I was thought it was funny, you know, pe- people down the street from me, they've got this big, gigantic, all during Trump's term, they had a gigantic black banner with with white block letters on it just saying, resist. I said, when when everyone in virtually every organization and person in power is on your side, you're not the resistance. One of the things that it'll take is curiosity. It'll also take grit, which, by the way, is is a virtue of curiosity. This is this is the next rule: show grit. Yeah, I tell stories about Cardinal Newman and and about Wittgenstein and and the kind of grit they showed in their scholarship. Wittgenstein had a profoundly religious instinct, and by the way, it was very Augustinian. I was going to ask you about Wittgenstein. Can you give us a little more on the grit that Wittgenstein had? He had the most, apparently, the most agonized kind of life. He could never stay in one place and do philosophy, you know, like like, uh, colleagues like G.E. Moore did. I mean, he had to give it up from time to time. He'd go to the west coast of Ireland. He'd go to a fjord in Norway. He became a school teacher. He thought at one point, I've solved all the problems of philosophy. I'm going to become a school teacher, right? And, and you know, and, and then he comes back when when he blots his copybook in Austria. And uh, and so it's it and his method of teaching. I mean, if, if you've ever been through a lecture, a Socratic lecture in philosophy, which is not much done in the style of Wittgenstein. It's an incredibly painful experience. I mean, the, the professor stands there and says something and waits for an answer, and, and, and the silence can be extraordinarily uh, unpleasant, uh, uh, hurtful. Uh, and, and at the end of a life, he said, tell them I've had a wonderful life, which everyone regards as profoundly problematical because he, he seemed to have a horrible life. But I think in the end, what he did was, I think he said, he, I think he forgave himself. Well, you see, the one thing that kept him from religion, from from 
though he listed himself as a Catholic, from you know becoming a a faithful Catholic, a, you know practicing Catholic, was he didn't have a sense of salvation. He didn't have a sense that he could be forgiven. But I think in that statement at the end of his life, he forgave himself because he knew what he had done. He had made himself the greatest philosopher in the 20th century. All right. Rule six, be interested in other people. And, And that's where I talk about love. You know, this is a very unloving era. This is a very hate filled era right now. And the more it preaches love, the more it hates. Right. And, and so we end up with uh, an incredibly alienated population. I, I tell the story, a story of a lady called Tara Condell, with absolutely everything she wanted, right? I mean, she was a restaurant critic, so she had pictures of herself on Instagram and great restaurants in Vietnam and Italy and whatever. And then she killed herself, right? Because she said, you know, whatever I do, I get no pleasure from it not from friends, not from anything. So, you know, we're, at a, we're in a time where loneliness has achieved, uh, it's an epidemic. I mean, thanks to Black Lives Matter, thanks to the pandemic and all that. Um, you know, suicides are up. And the way out of that is to take an interest in other people. And, and when you do that, that's going to require curiosity about what interests them, right? You want to entertain them. So you want to, you want to know something about them. And I said, in fact, this is the touchstone of love, right? I mean, if you want to know that if you're in love with someone, that's a difficult question, actually, right? I mean, you can say I'm, I'm in love, but it's not a performative. You don't create it by speaking it. And, and the test, therefore, I say, is uh, an obsessive curiosity about the other person. You want to know everything about the other person. I mean, what, what it was like when she went to school, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's the touchstone, right? And, and you see it. I mean, uh, I tell a story of Julian Sorel and the Red and the Black Stone Dell. And, 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 you know, the, the one person who re- really loved in that story, in that novel, was Madame de Renal, who was seduced by, by Julien. Who really doesn't love anyone, and and uh, but she remains curious about uh, about Julia even after he leaves her, and that's the that's the test of love. You talked about being entertaining. Let's j- jump to the next rule: be creative. What are your best examples there of creativity? Well, I, I begin with uh, a curious fellow, Abbot Suger, who is the person who built the first great Gothic cathedral in Saint Denis. And, you know, he wasn't a creator, but he was the next best thing. He was a collector. So, you know, he put this fantastic cathedral together and, and he gave things which gave us things which are, the, you know, the marks of Gothic, the Gothic, the, the Clara story with the, with the stained glass windows, uh, the rose window in front. It, you know, architecturally, it's the marvel. It's the model for everything that happened afterwards at Notre Dame and, you know, Salisbury Cathedral and Westminster and, um, you know, even the Gothic here in town and in, in, in Columbia, the National Cathedral. And this was the birth of an exciting new civilization, that of Northern Europe. That's how it began. But my other examples were the Pre-Raphaelites, who were curious people. I, I tell the story of Holman Hunt, one of them who painted the scapegoat about a dying goat on, in, in Israel. And Hunt was curious and religious and, and wanted to know exactly what it was like to 
push the goat into the desert to die. And so he he did that and portrayed it. You know, it wasn't well understood at the time, but it's 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 very much a masterpiece. All these guys, the pre-Raphaelites, were, you know, fantastically great creators. And they were also modernists. They picked up the new chemical paints from Germany, and they painted ordinary English people. They were befriended by John Ruskin, who's another a person I spent quite a bit of time talking about uh, during all this. And then there were the Aesthetes who followed. They they looked more deeply into what was going on, and you know one of them was Walter Pater, who was a professor at, at Oxford, homosexual, ugly as a pug, but he wrote about the Mona Lisa this way. I mean, we, we've passed it and, and seen it surrounded by hundreds of Japanese tourists, but here's how he described Mona Lisa. She is older than the rocks on which she sits. Like the vampire, she has been dead many times and has learned the secrets of the grave and has been a diver in the deep seas and keeps their fallen day about her and has trafficked for strange webs with Eastern merchants. That's how Pater described the Mona Lisa. I mean, he, he was looking more closely into the painting than anyone. And, and, and that's a kind of, of curiosity that makes a great critic. Your next sections warn against a couple of contemporary attitudes. One, don't be jaded. And another one is, don't be smug. The aesthetic tragedy at the end of the 19th century, the tragedy of, of people like Aubrey Beardsley and, and Oscar Wilde, was people who had pushed aestheticism too far. Uh, Beardsley enjoyed a vogue amongst us boomers in the 1960s with oh. his cruel pencil drawings. We, we we had we had Beardsley up on uh, my my mother had Beardsley up on the walls in the 60s. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, you know th this was very cool stuff at the time. But, but Beardsley, who was incurious about anything except art, right like Wilde realized that in the end, there was no possibility of exiting from aestheticism, except through suicide or what was equally drastic, a visit to the Jesuits at Farm Street, which is what Wilde wanted. So at the end of his life, Beardsley wrote this note to his, his um, agent, Jesus is our Lord and Judge. I implore you to destroy all copies of Lysistrata and bad drawings by all that is holy, all obscene drawings, Aubrey Beardsley, in my death agony. Hmm. Last words from him. Hmm. The same thing happened to Wilde. I mean, Wilde emerged from Reading Jail really quite fit, thanks to the treadmill, which is what we call a, a Stairmaster today. And, uh, you know, appeared for some friends. You know, the carnation buttonhole and was quite happy and had planned to go on a retreat in on farm street and as his friends were there word came back from farm street from the jesuits they refused him absolutely and he was absolutely crushed and he lingered on for for two years why did they refuse him well because he was uh you know a notorious gay you know, Blue Fellow, he had a horrible reputation. Wasn't he sincerely repentant? 
he was sincerely repentant, but uh, you know, I, I guess they 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 weren't quite persuaded. His reputation was that of the most evil man in England at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, um, different time. Um, but you know that that's the sort of thing that happens when you play the game of aestheticism too far the 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 other classic example is uh, George Carl Hausmann's his his novel out of Bourg, uh, against Nature. He tells a story about a marquis in France who experiences every single vice and then you know realizing that the world is nothing new to offer him repairs to his chateau. And at one point he thinks, no, you know, maybe I'll try to visit England, you know, for diversion. I'll try to visit England. And so what he does is he buys a Baedeker, he buys a guidebook. He imagines going, he imagines the steamboat going to Dover. He imagines the railway. He imagines the Stilton cheese. He imagines the pork pie. And then having imagined absolutely everything that would be experienced going to England, he realized he had, there was no point going there. And all that <laughs> remained to do was to unpack <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Last thing. L- l- last question, Frank. Because l- let's get to number twelve. Heaven's door. What's that? The idea is again, we're going to find all our friends dying, and uh, and we're going to have to think about death. Therefore, we'll have to worry about salvation, about Pascal, uh, like Pascal did, or. Like Camus, if we if we're, we're not believers, then we'll have to try to discover some way of affirming life, which which is what the myth of Sisyphus is all about. So that's the sense in which curiosity ultimately asks us to ask the the most the questions the most profound questions about life and death, right? And 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 therefore. That kind of curiosity is is noble and and deeply religious. The book is Curiosity. Frank Buckley, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.